Welcome everyone to another episode of the Veterans and Ag Podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. I'm your host, Mike Desop, and here we explore the stories and insights from the military veteran and supporter communities who are leading the way for vets in agribusiness, ag tech, and agripreneurship. We swap stories, talk ag, and show how the grassroots nature of the ag community can be a natural fit for the military veteran. This is the final episode in our series with military veterans at Seaboard Foods. Our guest this week is Kevin Sanders, Environmental Compliance and Maintenance Manager for Seaboard Foods in Iowa. In this capacity, Kevin is responsible for providing environmental compliance support for Seaboard's operations in Iowa, as well as Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas, Colorado. Kevin grew up on a farm in West Central Missouri, one of five with three brothers. His mom often dispatched the three of them across the county as free labor hands bailing hay all summer long. It's not the first time either we've had a guest talk about bumping into a marine recruiter first and then making his decision right then and there to join up. This is exactly what happened to Kevin. Then he spent the next six years in the Corps in places like Japan as a mechanic. In this episode, we talk about what it was like for him to stand in front of 100 Marines for the first time at 20 years old. This idea of giving his employees the ability to make their own decisions and then own those decisions, and the taping of his college notes onto the steering wheel of a tractor while he was working at the farm to put himself through school. We also get into his 20 plus year career in environmental management in the pork industry. The role technology is playing today with fertilizer management and pork production management, and why the younger generation is ideally suited to take up this new mantle. I grew up on a farm kind of in West Central Missouri, not a large farm, um, but we had cattle and hogs and chickens and turkeys and, you know, the wide, wide array of stuff. Um, where I grew up was pretty much a farming community, a little town of about 1800 people. Everybody farmed uh, in that area. So, you know, me and my brothers and sisters, I had five brothers and sisters, you know, we got to do lots of stuff out on the farm. These were long before the days of, you know, 300 TV channels and cell phones and all this other stuff. So, you know, it was, I have fond memories of the farm, uh, whether it was running around the pasture, chasing the cows or just, you know, hanging out outside. Really, really good memories back in those days. I always wonder, we're on a small farm in Northeast Texas as well. Uh, probably not of the same size you are, but of a similar variety, goats, chickens, pigs, cows, geese, ducks, uh, lots of stuff in the ground. And we've got four young boys, five to 11. And I always wonder, because they always gripe about doing the chores in the morning. And I always wonder when they're our age, how they'll look back on that. Right. And think, yeah. is that, can I appreciate that? Do I look at that with a positive or a nostalgic view? Or do I say, man, I, I'm so glad I got the hell out of there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so different nowadays. You know, I, I have teenage kids and, you know, we, we don't live on a farm today. We're, we're in town. Um, mm -hmm. yes. But, you know, just trying to think how they would react if I, you know, if they didn't have any of the cool stuff they have today. And I said, hey, go out in the pasture and count the cows or go get some bullfrogs out of the pond. You know, yeah. just how that would, uh, how that interaction would go. Yeah. I didn't have that experience either, but I watch it play out today, and yeah. I, I can't imagine uh, 
sort of, I can't imagine anything different really for my kids now, you know, it'd be hard to sort of shift that thought process. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same way, you know, even, even as I got a little older, you know, before I could drive, you know, just thinking back to those days, you know, it's, we hauled a lot of hay. Uh, my dad was pretty good. My dad drove a milk truck for mm. a lot of years and picked up milk around uh, all the dairy, smaller dairy farms around where I grew up. And uh, dad had a good ability to make sure farmers knew he had three sons who could haul hay. And uh, <laughs> it was kind of funny. My mom <clears throat> actually, I always thought of my mom as the dispatcher during the summer because everybody would start bailing hay about one o'clock in the afternoon and about 11 a.m the phone would start ringing and you know it'd be a lot of different farmers hey i got 300 bells tall here i got a thousand and mom would kind of coordinate that and when we would come home you know before lunch you'd be like okay you two need to be at this farm at one you need to be over here at two and then you're all going to converge at four right at this other farmer so that was pretty much all summer long every summer while i was growing up you know before i actually started working in town yeah Um, you know another another fond memory for me even while I was in high school and, and even after I uh, initially got out of the military, my grandpa and grandma, uh, Tedman Camp on my mom's side, they had a farm out in the country. And a couple of the guys that I worked for at college and in high school, they actually farmed most of that ground when, when grandpa and grandma were done doing that. So yeah. that's always good memories, actually getting in the tractor. And my dad farmed a lot of that ground as well. So I remember, you know, when I got the opportunity to get in the tractor for the guys I worked for, you know, I got to run the field cultivator on the same field my dad did, Wow. the same field my grandpa did, you know, so it's just a lot of fun, you know, a lot of fun. How old were you when you got to sit in the driver's seat? Oh, I was probably 13, 14 years old when I first got to do that. Now it's pretty intimidating. Don't get me wrong. Uh, But but great memories, long days. You know, you really didn't think about it back then. I probably didn't think about the long days until I was 17 or 18 years old. And I thought I <laughs> should be doing something else other than riding around a tractor all day. But, you know, really, really great memories that probably a few people get to actually do. So what I haven't heard you mention yet, Kevin, is um, a sense of the military service. How did that become a part of your sphere of upbringing? <clears throat> Yeah, so so when I was growing up, I had a couple uncles that were in the military, and, and you know when I was very young, we'd always go to Grandpa and Grandma Sanders for Christmas, and my uncles would come into town, and they'd come from all over the world, wherever they were stationed at. One was in the Air Force, one was in the Army, and I always remember seeing them, you know, when I was really young, and thought it was pretty cool, you know, that was kind of my vision of it at that point. And then as I got a little older. You know, as I mentioned earlier, having five brothers and sisters, I was trying to figure out a way. How do I how do I pay for college? You know, my mom and dad always gave us everything we needed. Um, so there's never an issue with that. But I was like, hey, it's it, I'm old enough. I need to take a little responsibility for my future. So I happened to be at a career fair, <laughs> something of that nature at the high school. And I, I knew I was going to go in the military. That's my best opportunity to get a job get some money for college and get the whole deal. So I walked in the door and the Marine Corps recruiter was the first person I saw. First person I talked to, 
the last person I talked to. Um, <laughs> I decided I wanted to join the Marines. Probably, you know, I, I was I was thinking, boy, if I had dress blues on at Christmas at Grandma Grandma Sanders' house when my uncles were there, that'd be some great conversation. <clears throat> and it ultimately was. Um, but I, what I appreciated the most was kind of the, the image and the respect for the Marines. Not that any other branch didn't have that as well, uh, but it really drew me to that. And uh, I give the Marines a lot of credit for who I am today from what I learned there. So that's, that's how the, the military experience started. I did six years active duty in the Marines, <clears throat> got to travel, uh, spent two years in Japan, with the Marines, which I would have never done had I not joined the military. Um, got done with my active duty service and went to college. And I was a struggling college student like most college students are. Um, and there was a National Guard armory uh, in the town I was going to college in. And my roommate was actually in the guard already. So he goes, well, hey, why don't you just come down and check it out? So I did, and uh, that turned into 15 more years of military service um, in multiple states as my career advanced in agriculture. I was in multiple states. I was in multiple different units in, in all those states, so quite a, quite a variety of stuff. Okay, so you had fully separated from the Marine Corps and got back into military service through the National Guard and your buddy in college service or time yep. of college. Correct. Okay. Yeah, I was never stationed to step back to your Marine Corps experience. I was never stationed in Japan, but uh, some of the folks that I served with after I left did UDPs to Okinawa and just had a, a, a bunch of good experiences to say about it. I'm wondering if there's one that perhaps stick, has stuck with you today, whether it was in Japan or in another deployment that you might have had in the six-year career. Yeah, gosh, there's lots of memories. You know, I think... I think what the, the memory that sticks with me most is when I got promoted to sergeant in the Marine Corps, I was in Okinawa at the time. And, you know, in the military, it's really kind of a point system. You know, you have X amount of time in service, X amount of time in grade. And if you get the points, you just get promoted. Uh, so I, I got promoted to sergeant and our master sergeant, who was kind of the overall top enlisted in my unit, he goes, well, congratulations on you know, your promotion. Now you're the platoon sergeant. <laughs> so the next day I walk out and there's a hundred Marines standing in front of me and I'm responsible for all of them. So that memory, I, I go back to that a lot uh, in my career of just the thought process I had to go through at that point. I had to grow up really fast. I was 20 years old, you know, and here you got a hundred people you're responsible for. Um, and you really got to learn how to listen, how to understand what people are going through and use in the Marine Corps, really the leadership, <coughs> excuse me, the, the 14 leadership traits that I still carry with me today, which all Marines know. JJ um, did tie buckle. Yeah, there you go. JJ did tie <laughs> buckle. That's right. Um, but really use those effectively. Um, so whenever I'm in a tough spot or tough situation, I always think back to that and mm -hmm. really ask myself, what's tougher than a hundred young hard charging Marines that you're in charge of at 20 years old? The way a sergeant leads a hundred young Marines is different than a way 
you know, Kevin Sanders does at Seaboard today. Right. I mean, is there a particular technique, maybe for lack of a better phrase, or is there kind of a tried and true method that you discovered and refined and have retained from the military that pertains to leadership that you still kind of practice today? Yeah, I think, you know, one thing I try and do, and I'm not always successful at it, but I always try and do this with, with individuals I get the pleasure of working with every day is I want to give them the ability to own decisions they make and own mm. the progress they're making and, and be supportive. And I think back to when I was that young young sergeant, I really had to apply kind of the same things. I mean, in Okinawa, I had 100 people who were on an island thousands of miles away from everything they know, you know, and a, a rock that was maybe 50 miles long and three miles wide, you know. So, you know, I think I, I try and let people create as much success as they can mm -hmm. uh, on their own and give them the confidence to do that, to make those decisions, uh, realizing that we're not always going to be right, yeah. but not being right in maybe the corporate world versus not being right in the Marines, there's a difference, yeah. you know, there, there really is. Um, so I try and use that as much as I can always go into it with that thought. You know, I really like to see the younger generation kind of see that success that a lot of us in this business got to see 25, 30 years ago when, mm -hmm. when our industry was kind of just getting started. As you mentioned, post-military service, you decided to go to school. Where'd you go to school? What'd you study? How'd you decide you, what you wanted to study? Yeah, so I went to University of Central Missouri, a little Division II school close to where I grew up. Um, I chose there, honestly, because I could commute to my job at the farm easily. So that was really the reason I chose that one over mm -hmm. maybe the University of Missouri, which was a little further away. Both equally great schools. Um, I went into agricultural business, was uh, my major coming out of college. It was always going to be agriculture. I, I remember when I was graduating from high school, <clears throat> you kind of give your, what's your future look like as a senior, right? Yeah, everybody does it. Put it in a little small town newspaper. And uh, what I said my future was going to be is I was going to retire from the military and work in agriculture. That, that's mm -hmm. what I said as a senior in high school. And a lot of people ask me, why would you choose agriculture out of everything you can do uh, coming out of high school? I was like, well, one, I'd been around it. I grew up on a farm. I, I appreciated it. I saw my family uh, in that industry and enjoyed it. But, but the second part to that, as I told people, I was like, you know, one thing most generally everybody has to have is food to survive. And what better place than agriculture to provide that particular piece yeah. that everybody on the face of the earth needs. Uh, so that was really, I mean, as simple as it sounds, that's really the reason I went into agriculture. Um, now, when I got into college, coming out of the Marines, so I was a little older, right? Uh, I'd already done six years active duty. So I, I believe I had a whole different perspective of what college should be versus maybe somebody coming out of high school. Um, so I, I went to the dean uh, and your counselors. And I, I said, Hey, I'm a little older. 
I mean, how do I get done as fast as possible? Um, so I had some military schooling that applied to college. So it took up electives. Okay. So I was able to apply a lot of that NCO school, staff NCO school, those things. Um, but then it was all about how many hours are you going to put in per semester to get done? Uh, I remember a semester or two <clears throat> of 20 hours um, in a semester. Those were a challenge, but you know what? It's what I had to do to, to complete that phase of college. Um, I can remember a lot of nights hauling grain out of the fields late, you know, late harvest season. And I would actually tape my notes from class to the steering wheel of the tractor while I wasn't driving, of course, uh -huh. and just study, you know, study because I'd have tests or whatever coming up. And uh, the guys I work for are always like, just don't forget any of your books in the tractor. We don't want you to have to come back in the morning and get it. But did a lot of that um, and really, you know, re really helped build me into who I am as well. You know, that dedication, that focus to get done. So three and a half years after starting college, I graduated and wow. was done uh, with, with a bachelor's degree. As somebody that grew up on a farm, and really always knew that was where they wanted to come back to. I'm curious as to if any of your overseas experiences with the Marine Corps gave you a perspective on agriculture, and then Japan would be really interesting, that might have that you know, changed a preconceived notion or perhaps made your desire to continue to serve an ag that much stronger or deposited a seed of doubt, like, do I really want to do this? after the service yeah yeah well you know i got to i got to see agriculture firsthand on okinawa um you know with the local farmers there you know with their ox and they're doing very primitive farming yeah. techniques there i mean small island most of the food came from other countries right brought into okinawa um but <clears throat> those farmers that were there it, it didn't change my opinion of farming. You know, if anything, you know, I asked myself, gosh, how do you bring the technology that we have in the U.S. in the 80s and 90s, you know, to Okinawa to, to match at least some of what we do? So mm -hmm. it, it, I don't think it never changed my attitude about agriculture. If anything, it probably reinforced why I wanted to do it. You know, because there is a global community um, that needs agricultural products. Got it. Now, I'm I'm just I'm always intrigued as to how those international experiences, especially from from a place like Japan, may or may not have influenced kind of the future of whether or not you stayed in ag. Yeah, uh, I, I probably the one thing living in Okinawa for two years did is really solidified my independence more mm -hmm. than anything. You know, because. I'm a long ways from home. I was only supposed to be there a year and Desert Storm started um, while I was on Okinawa. And, you know, pretty tense time, you know, we're getting, everybody's getting activated and we're moving troops, uh, you know, into that region of the world. And we were on high alert as well. You know, fortunate or unfortunately, we never deployed off Okinawa. <clears throat> we provide a lot of support as flights came in and out. Um, but we were really the only Marine force left not activated at that point who weren't in Iraq already or in that 
zone. So, you know, it, it, um, what it got for me is an extra year in Okinawa. Should only been there a year. So I got involuntarily extended for another year. Please note the involuntarily yeah, right. part. Uh, right, right. Uncle Sam said stay and we did. Kevin, you talked about uh, an undergraduate in agribusiness. When I was doing a little research for this episode, I, I noticed a lot of work history in environmental science and management. How did how did you connect those dots? I didn't study necessarily environmental stuff. You know, we talked about it in college, obviously, but I think my experience on the environmental side of the business, and I got to do a lot of different areas uh, within the pork business, but the early experience just came from a need. And so in my, in my first position uh, in Oklahoma, new operations, we were growing quickly and it was an opportunity that was presented. And, and I was thankful to have some good leaders at the time that recognized some potential, whether I knew or not the content, they recognize the potential. So <clears throat> at that point, it's kind of like a sponge. I need to learn everything I can learn about this and build relationships with state agencies, have those conversations and, and continue to get smarter about, you know, what we did environmentally. Um, so I got to do that early on in my career. Um, and I just built on that over time. You know, I got to work for for many different pork companies just through the progression of my career. Um, and, you know, to see that kind of come full circle uh, here at Seaboard, you know, I remember all those early trials and tribulations about what's the right thing to do. Um, but it's, it's, it's an area of our business that's very important. And, you know, it's it, I always call it, and I, I borrow this from my time at BHP Billiton, but it's really our license to operate, right, in whatever state we're in. It, it gives us the ability to do what we need to do, but there are ex expectations that come with that as it relates how you, how you manage the business. So <clears throat> I continue to learn. I continue to grow. I don't think that's ever going to be over, um, but you know, my, my position today really, I think, started 20 years ago and has just matured into this at this point. And you, you kind of describe it as the sort of license to operate in, in, I guess, maybe another phrase or description. What, what is a pork producer concerned about with respect <clears throat> to environmental compliance? What, what, what do they need to think about with, in that license to operate framework? Yeah. Sure. You know, water quality and protection of the water resources that we have is important. It's a key component of what we do, uh, but it's a key component of life in general. So that's important to us. Water quality you know, for, the, for the animals or water quality of the waste? Wa water quality, protecting the groundwater that we Got have it. Got is it. more okay. what I mean. Yep. Okay. Um, and, and along with that comes how do we take you know, the, the animal waste product that we have and really make sure we show folks that that's a valuable commodity. Um, mm -hmm. And how do we integrate that product with our local farmers and their cropping plans as a valuable resource to them, you know, applying at agronomic rates um, and really managing that product appropriately. So it in turn is truly a benefit to the cropping plan that farmers have and all those things. So that's 
that's what's important to me. <clears throat> I know that's important to uh, generally all pork producers because we rely on those same resources in our operation that everybody else does in life. And we want to protect those resources as well. Mm. So it's, it's, it's important for us to do that. And, you know, with precision agriculture, the way it is today, it gets better and better and better that you can really fine tune and hone in that valuable product that we have onto a field match up with soil sampling techniques the farmers are using and really place that product <clears throat> to maximize what the ground can do agronomically and, and in a you know environmentally conscious way so that's that's really in a nutshell what we're trying to do the product that comes out of these lagoons is a fertilizer product it is it is it has you know it has np and k values to it much like commercial fertilizer so you know, once you have analysis of that product out of out of a lagoon, you understand what the farm the farm operator's cropping plan is mm -hmm. and what they're going to plant <clears throat> each year, and then you apply the manure at agronomic rates to match the output of the crop. That's that's really what you're doing, balancing it all out. And are you is this transported via a, a kind of flood piping system to local surrounding farms, or is this something that's transported via container truck somewhere else? So there's there's multiple ways in, in multiple states um, how that's done. You can do it through center pivot irrigation, which okay. is fairly common. Um, in in Iowa, for instance, a lot of that is injected actually into the ground. Hmm. Uh, through balzer tanks, so uh, comes out of facilities and goes direct eject into the ground. Uh, there's what we call drag lines that pull the umbilical cord around and apply it across multiple acres at a time. So there's there's many ways that it's done that are that are kind of common in the industry. You mentioned earlier some of the technology that's at these facilities that's um, able to either monitor or monitor and then capture the methane that's coming off of the lagoons and the facilities to the extent that you can, you can comment. Can you give me some more insight into what kinds of technologies, how they're operating, uh, how you're, what you're, what you're utilizing this methane for and how that becomes a product for you guys as well? Yeah, so so there's multiple levels of technology, you know, that we use across our business. And I'll kind of start, you know, at the production side of things. You know, I remember 20 years ago, you might have five individual thermostats that ran everything in the facility. So you you hope your thermostat is accurate and you're setting individual fans and all those things. Yeah, that's 20 years ago or better. Now, you know, we've got some fairly advanced computer systems actually in the farms <clears throat> that monitor basically everything that's going on and can give you some real-time data on how the farms operate and how much propane is the facility using. Okay. Yeah, how much water is the facility using? So that's the type of technology we want to get our hands around. Because if you think about it, the pork industry, there's less and less people that actually grow up on a farm nowadays, you know, much different from when I grew up, you know, so the, the pool of people that just naturally have a background in animal husbandry or farming practices gets smaller and smaller all the time. 
you know, so you, what we try and create a system that's very repetitive, you know, there's standard operating procedures for mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, use more recent technology to really help our farms understand how to manage the facility and for us to understand what kind of the facility does on a day-to-day basis. So that's kind of inside the farm. <clears throat> um, from an outside the farm perspective, uh, and you, you mentioned the, the capture of the methane, you know, that's, a, I, I believe, a process that's been more and more refined all the time where we can actually capture the gas, scrub it, and, and turn it into a, a renewable energy product into the pipeline. So that's, it's fairly new. It's, it's relatively new to us. Um, that there's some other integrators that have done it, but, you know, the amount of, I don't know that I can explain all the technology to you that goes into that, but it, it's yeah. a, it's an exciting time in our business um, to understand how we can use that technology even further and really turn what's maybe a natural byproduct of what we do right into a, a renewable product that right. everyone can use. I mean, yeah. it, ignorantly, I'm thinking of like these, these sort of vacuum systems on the edges of the legumes that are extracting the gases and running them through scrubbers. Is that, am I even in the ballpark of how this might actually occur? Well, you're, you're close. Okay. <laughs> I'll fine tune it for you a little bit. Uh, so basically, you know, these lagoons are covered with okay. a liner. So that gas is captured under the liner okay. and then piped from there over to a scrubber, you know, and cleaned up and you know, all the, all the stuff taken out of it before it is then it becomes a kind of a commercial grade mm-hmm. uh, renewable fuel. So it's, hmm. that's very, a very simple explanation of a much more involved process. When you and I first, first talked yesterday, uh, Kevin, we had sort of talked about the younger generation and how this is a really interesting time to sort of bring them into the conversation on a couple of different perspectives. So let's say I'm a transitioning veteran. I want to get into pork production. I maybe have 100 acres that uh, I consider putting a, a barn on. Is that something that I could engage with Seaboard to help me do? If so, how does that work? Yeah, so that'd be a, a contract grower scenario. And we, and we have a lot of those in our Iowa operations and a few here in kind of our Oklahoma, Kansas operations, but fairly common, I would say more in Iowa uh, okay. because that's kind of how the model is built up there. You know, the, an Iowa farmer truly understands the value of that manure and what it means to his cropping mm. plan. Hmm. Um, up there, it's more of a, what we call a deep pit facility. So the barn has kind of a basement under it, basically, and the manure all goes there. So you got a very protected product under the building um, that they can agitate and then go land apply. So, you know, it's, we have lots of contract growers that we work with every day. Um, So I I think if you had somebody coming out of the military that was interested in that, absolutely could reach out to Seaboard. There are other integrators that do the same thing. Um, Okay and you know start to ask those questions are, are there incentives that seaboard offers that perhaps other integrators or contract growers don't like why would a veteran want to work with you guys yeah well because we're the best 
for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, <clears throat> I think it depends a lot on what the individual grower is looking for. Okay. You know, if it's a, if it's a manure focus, they just want pigs in their barn creating manure because their mm. goal is to get that to their fields and earn some income from their facility. Yeah. Uh, because it's, you know, I think, and I don't know this for sure, but I would tell you generally the, the revenue from a contract site is generally pretty close across most producers because you're in competition for barns. Okay. So that's relatively close. So then it, as I mentioned, it comes down to if I'm a farmer, I want to know, okay, I've got the, the rental rate for the building that the company's going to pay me for me building it. Are they going to have pigs in it all the time? So I get the maximum amount of yeah. fertilizer value possible. Yeah. And then what's the relationship with that producer? Is a, you know, is it a two-way relationship? You work together to try and do the right things. You know, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, but th those are the things I think that I would look for, uh, okay. if I was building a contract barn. So if I'm putting myself back in the sort of interested veteran contract grower, um, uh, shoes, are there environmental considerations that I should be aware of in Iowa that perhaps I may not need to be concerned with, or maybe different than another big corn producing state like, you know, Illinois or Missouri or somewhere else? Yeah. Yeah. It's each state's going to have kind of their own set of rules and regulations around newly constructed facilities <clears throat> or even existing facilities that a veteran may want to buy. Okay. Well, that's all be there. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really state by state by state, you know, uh, of, what you got to do and what you got to comply with yeah, all those regulations, you know, in my observance and, and having time spent with them, they all are relatively the same. They're trying to protect the same things. Okay. Each state will go about it a little differently, but those are resources, you know, for a contract grower, those resources are kind of readily available from okay. the individual departments, um, mm -hmm. extension offices, all those things. So it's it's not like you'd be pioneering that process as a veteran coming out to try and do it. It's it's a well-established process. Why is now a good time for the younger generation to pick up the mantle? Why should they kind of care about this right now? There's a significant group in the pork industry that, you know, back in the 90s where us young folk who, you know, that knowledge could kind of, you know, leave the pork industry all at once, you know, maybe not all at once, but in a pretty short period. So that's my excitement for the next generation to try and teach them as much as possible, teach them about all the mistakes I made back then. Don't do those things. They're also, you know, the younger generation is in such a better position technology-wise knowledge-wise to learn so much faster. You know, if I could have jumped on Google in 1992 and, you know, got a thousand answers in 1.3 milliseconds, yeah, it probably would have been way different. But, yeah. you know, we learned that the hard way back then. So it's, you know, I try and make sure the next generation, at least what I can do is 
get them over all the things that we did wrong, store that in your memory and let's keep moving the business forward because mm. that group's going to feed the world for the next 50, 60, 70 years. And yeah. we got to have people doing that. It's important uh, for the globe that we continue to do what we do. One of the things Brock said to me, he goes, pigs are the easy part. Yeah. It's the people, it's the people that are the hard, but he didn't mean hard part, but it's the people that require the, the attention and the understanding of how to interact and the nuance of relationships. Yeah. And he and, said, that's and, all stuff I learned in the Navy, for example. And, well, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. You know, folks coming out of the military and I'm speaking from my own experience have a, a distinct advantage because mm. you've been through that already. You know, you know how to lead, you know how to follow, you know how to standardize things, you know how to, you know, interact with people from all over the place in a in a very confined type job, right? You know, so you've got some of those experiences, uh, experiences and traits that college probably isn't going to teach you. You have to learn a little bit of that. The, the, the military has it going on when it comes to that. Sure. Yeah. And it's such a, uh, it's this kind of almost invisible quality that a lot of the veterans bring to not just the ag space, but to all spaces. Yeah. And it's really hard to make it known in some ways, right? And story is one way to do it and kind of sharing experiences. And, <laughs> and then in some instances, it's just about the agribusiness taking the chance on the veteran yeah. who may not have all the qualifications or the checks in the box but who's got the sort of the good stuff in other ways and yeah. giving them an opportunity to, to run with it you know yeah I, I would tell you and i hope lots of veterans watch this podcast because what i would tell every one of them is it, it's it's the pork industry but it's way more than raising pigs so you really got to come see what agribusiness is today versus what maybe your thought process is you know around what ag yeah. is. and it doesn't matter how you grew up or where you come from you know it's the skill set to lead a business lead a farm operations work in standard operating procedures be able to lead a team that we're really looking for and, and as i mentioned earlier as a vet you got a lot of those things already The use of technology in pork production today is, in many ways, helping to replace this dwindling lack of baseline knowledge in animal husbandry and management as an older generation approaches retirement. This intuitive feel of an operation imparted to a producer through generations of experience and mistakes, things like water, propane use, feed management, temperature control, etc is now being digitally fed to the younger generation through a dashboard while they drink their morning coffee. Is this a good thing? Are we more efficient today because of this added technology? Not sure, but it certainly is a thing and something Kevin articulates in this interview. This liquid animal waste from the production barns is used as a replacement, or at least a supplement to traditional synthetic fertilizers for cropping operations. And the methane gas from the lagoons is captured and scrubbed for use as a renewable energy source. Are these responsible stewardship practices 
to deal with a natural byproduct from a process that was set up to meet growing consumer demands for pork? Are these enough? All of these questions have answers that are still evolving and subject to differing opinions. For me at least, this interview with Kevin spawned so many questions. If you'd like to hear us dive deeper into any of these issues with military veterans who are leading the way, please reach out. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vets and Ag podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. If you enjoyed this episode and think other military veterans and supporters would benefit from these insights and stories, please give us a review and share on social media. You can also find previous episodes and learn more about AGD Consulting by visiting our website. Finally, if you have any recommendations of future guests who are military veterans or supporters leading the way in agribusiness, ag tech, or agripreneurship, please send them our way. I'm your host, Mike Desau, and until next time, stay frosty.